we're beginning a brand new series today that I've actually been wanting to preach through for about two and a half years. And I have, I've put together five messages that used to be five series. I think the topics that we'll cover in the next five weeks are so important that I was willing to devote a month to each of them. And here's why. In the last 15 years of ministry that I've done, it seems like 90% of the meetings that I ever have with people, 90% of the phone calls that I ever take, 90% of the time, nine out of 10 times that someone comes to me and needs pastoral advice or biblical advice, or they just need to talk to me for a minute, it seems like nine out of 10 times it deals with one of these five areas that, that the Bible speaks to, just practical everyday stuff. So the next five weeks, we're going to dig into a series called Practical Jesus. I want you to make sure you take your sermon notes today. You kind of have to open your bulletin up and tear them off. But these are going to be five, basically, pieces of paper that I hope you'll keep with you for the rest of your life. And I don't say that about all of our sermon notes, because not all of them are like practical, spiritual advice you'll need for the rest of your life. But I believe that if you call me five weeks from now, nine out of ten times that you call me moving forward... Um, I could literally say, go back and look at the notes from this day and do that. That's how practical the truth is that we're going to deal with. And here's the five things that we're going to talk about starting today. We're going to talk about how to deal with relational conflict and how to move through um, conflict in relationships. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about how to manage a cluttered life. You'll find it surprising that one of the things that Jesus speaks to most as he tries to turn people into disciples and help them understand how to live for God. Most of them want to, they just don't have time. And you see Jesus over and over again speaking to very busy people saying, here's some little things that you can do in the midst of your very busy life to make sure that Jesus is front and center. In three weeks, I'll talk about how to make a difference. I talk to people all the time. They just say, I just want my life to count for something. I'll talk about how simply you can make every day count. On May 18th, Pastor Jimmy Dodd, who's kind of a teaching pastor at our church, will be here. I'll be here too, listening to him preach that day. But he's going to talk about how to feel close to God. I hear people say all the time, I just want to, I want to feel like I'm close to God. How do I do that? He's going to address that. And then five weeks from today on May 25th, we're going to talk about how to find quality friends. How do you find friends that can go the distance and really help you in life and marriage and in parenting and just be there when no one else is there? I, I think nine out of the ten meetings that I have deal with these things. I had a meeting this week that, uh, that dealt with dealing with relational conflict. I have a conference call later today that is dealing with relational conflict, and I've set up three meetings in the next three weeks, just this week, where I'm going to talk people through how to deal with relational conflict. That's how big it is in life. And what I've learned as I've gone through ministry is that if you don't know how to deal with people in conflict, you're really going to struggle in life. And about 10 years into my ministry... I was on vacation and I was reading this book, 10 Things That Every Minister Needs to Know, written by a pastor in Springdale, Arkansas by the name of Ronnie Floyd. And I had just that summer been to a pastor's conference where I had learned a phrase that kind of summarized how I felt after about a decade of ministry because I had decided that I really loved ministry. And I really loved the outcome of being engaged in a life of ministry. But I didn't know how much I really liked people. Because after a decade of just dealing with people, you kind of get a little bit burnt out. And I picked up a phrase from a pastor that I asked, hey, how's things going? And he said, man, you know, ministry would be great except for having to deal with people all the time. And we kind of laughed. And I realized that that's kind of a phrase that a lot of people use in a lot of different areas. So I'm reading through this book 
And in chapter 7, he talks about how leaders have to be willing to have relationships. And he says, if you're a pastor who feels like ministry is great except for the people, you are not cut out for ministry. And I thought, oh boy. And he went on for an entire chapter basically saying life is built around relationships. Jesus' ministry was built around relationships. The whole story of God pursuing humanity is God wanting a relationship with people. And if you don't learn how to manage relationships and difficulty in relationships, you probably shouldn't be a pastor. You probably shouldn't be engaged with people at all. And I think about that phrase that I heard and the many different ways that I've heard it. I I think about the teachers that I've talked to and I say, hey, how's the school year going? I bet I've talked to six teachers today. Kind of my, my educator line today has been the year's almost over. And like almost every one of them have said like, finally, some told me like the day, like 26 days. Another told me the week. And, and I hear teachers say all the time, you know, I love the kids I just can't stand their parents and having to deal with parents. I've heard principals say, I've talked to principals because I grew up in an education family. You know, I love education and I love love what education does, but man, having to deal with the teachers all the time. I've heard parents say, you know, I love the school district, but I just don't like the coaches there. So we're, you know, we're thinking about maybe having to make a change. I've heard people talk about how much they love their neighborhood and where they live, but they can't stand their neighbors. I've heard people that love their job, but they hate their bosses or they love their job, but they don't like their employees. I've heard people say, I love my kids, but I don't like my spouse. And I've heard people say, I love my spouse, but I can't stand my in-laws. It seems like everyone is dealing with some type of relational tension or conflict that just steals the joy out of the things that we love most in life. And as we dig into today's message, I want to start with this fact. I believe that we all have trouble dealing with difficult people. And as I reworked this message this weekend to kind of put the final touches on it, on my outline, I scratched out the word difficult. And my outline says we all have trouble dealing with people because I don't think there are difficult people and non-difficult people. I think there's just people. And anytime you get more than one person, anytime a person becomes a people, anytime there's more than one, the opportunity for conflict arises. Whether it's Genesis 4 and Genesis 4 8, Cain and his brother Abel went into a field, they got into a conflict, Cain killed his brother. Or whether it's Philippians 4, nearly 6,000 years later, where the Apostle Paul, writing to the church that he started, said, These two ladies, Yodi and Santigi, tell them to stop fighting, tell them they have to get along. Scripture is filled from the front to the back with people who are trying to work through and living in relational conflict. And sometimes, unfortunately, it seems as if our lives are just lived from one relational conflict to the next. We're either coming out of a conflict, or we're trying to figure out how to deal with a conflict, or you don't know it this week, but you're getting ready to step into a conflict with somebody. And when we think that way, and when we agree with that, we find out that our lives are not centered with some very practical truth in Scripture. If you have your Bible today, I want you to open to Romans chapter 12. Romans is one of the, the deepest theological books that's ever been written. If you don't have your Bible, our ushers have some that you can have today. So if you want a Bible to read this verse, or if you want a Bible to keep, just wave at our ushers, and they'll give it to you. If you forgot one, you can use this today. If you don't have one, keep this, put your name in it. We've given away nearly 700 Bibles now in the last two and a half years of our church. Just like this, people show up to church, they want to have a Bible to open up to see what we're studying, and, they, and then they keep it. So go home, read it, bring it back with you when you come next Sunday. But Romans is one of the deepest theological books that's ever been written. And basically everything except Romans chapter 12 is very difficult to understand. 
And it's really pretty difficult to explain. I took 52 weeks several years ago and taught through the entire book of Romans. It took me a, a year to get through one verse at a time, the book of Romans. But the easy chapter in Romans is Romans chapter 12. Because Romans chapter 12 is just practical, everyday advice. And there's a verse in Romans chapter 12, Romans 12, 18, that speaks to our lives and where we're supposed to live relationally. And here's what it says, Romans 12, 18. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, you need to underline that verse, circle it, highlight it, do do whatever you do, write it down on the palm of your hand. You need to do something to remember this verse. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, we can know from Romans chapter 12 that one of the main goals of Christian relationships is that we live at peace with people in our lives. And if we could say that the goal of Christian relationships is to live at peace, probably the reality of many relationships of us who call ourselves Christians is that we have a little bit of conflict and a little bit of tension, whether it's with our spouse, whether it's with our kids, whether it's with our parents, whether it's with our in-laws, whether it's with our bosses, whether it's with our coworkers, whether it's with our employees, whether it's with our neighbors, whether it's with old high school friends or old college friends, there's this layer of relational conflict that just kind of sits in life and it steals the peace away that God wants us to have and that, to be really honest with you, mankind desires. We have a phrase for the pursuit of humanity called peace of mind where, where we'd like to just be able to go to bed one night without worrying about anything. We'd like to be able to get up one day without worrying about anything. So we've coined this phrase, peace of mind, like we wish we could just have peace in our mind. Jesus in Matthew 5 said, blessed are people who make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, the world honors those who pursue and create peace. Every year, a Nobel Peace Prize is given to somebody who's made the most advances in trying to keep peace in the world that we live in. The Indians hundreds of years ago smoke a peace pipe to confirm a covenant that was made saying, hey, peace is important to us and we're going to solidify it. The hippies created a peace symbol that many of us wear on our t-shirts or have as a bumper sticker that we flash to people when we're driving down the road and Dave Ramsey has created an empire by promising financial peace. There's this thought that we just want to live at peace. We're tired of conflict. We have conflict, it seems like, in every area of life. If we could just have one peaceful area of life, that would be good. In Isaiah 26.3, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament, Isaiah promises perfect peace to those who are close to God. He says, you'll keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. And many of us today would say, Christian, the only thing that stands between me and really having perfect peace in my life is this person. And this person might be my husband, it might be my wife, might be my kids, might be my neighbor, might be my bosses, might be my mom or dad, maybe a grandma or grandpa, maybe it's somebody I work across the hallway from. Christian, I really think if I didn't have to go to bed worrying about this person and get up thinking about this person that that things could be better... And the Bible helps us understand that God doesn't want us to live in relational conflict. According to Romans 12, 18, the Bible wants us to live with relational peace. And the Bible has some very practical advice on how to have peace in our life. If you look at kind of the title of our Bible study on your, on your sermon notes today, what I'm going to try to help you understand today from the biblical perspective is how to keep your sanity in relational conflicts. But I need you to circle the word your Because I'm not going to teach you anything today about the person that you might have conflict with. 
And as a matter of fact, I'm not going to teach you anything today about what they need to do or what they might do or even how they might react. I cannot change the hearts and minds of people who don't want to be led by Jesus. And guess what? We can only do what we can do. But I can teach you today from Scripture how to keep your sanity in relational conflict by giving you just a few tips and some very practical advice from Jesus. Jesus just saying, well, just if you have this issue, do these two or three things. That's why we're calling this series Practical Jesus. It's Jesus as basic as he gets of, hey, Jesus, I have this problem. And Jesus says, okay, go do this. The next five weeks, we're going to look at a lot of areas. Today is relational conflict. And you'll be surprised to learn that a lot of the problem in relational conflict sometimes is us, not another person. And the first piece of advice that the Bible gives on how to get over relational conflict so you can live with peace in your heart is simply that phrase. Scripture says sometimes when it comes to relational conflict, you just need to learn to get over it. You just have to learn to get over the thing that has happened that has offended you, the thing that has happened that has kind of put a burr in your saddle. Sometimes you just... You got to learn to to get over things. I believe that this this point, if we would just stop on this point, I believe that three fourths of our relational conflict would go away if we would just quit taking ourselves so seriously and if we would quit being so easily offended. I really believe we live in the most easily offended culture in the history of the world. Last night, my son's baseball tournament games got pushed back so late because of the rain all morning. So his baseball game as a 12-year-old last night started at 10.30 p.m., got over at 12.15. We got home at 1 and got to bed about 2 a.m. Thank God we're all so committed to Little League Baseball that, you know, we're going to lose our mind. But as we pulled into the parking lot last night at 10 p.m., you know, debating whether or not we were even going to go play, there were a car and I were, were moving towards each other with only one parking stall. And Christian said to me, Dad, hurry up and get in there before he takes our parking stall. And I just stood, I said, Christian, first, that's not our parking stall. It's a parking stall. And if he, if he wants it, he can have it. I can't tell who was here first. But isn't that how we think? I mean, have you ever had anyone steal your parking stall? Have you ever had anyone at a four-way stop go when it's your turn? Have you ever had somebody, when you're walking into a store behind somebody, not hold your door open for you? Or perhaps you've held a door open for someone and they didn't say thank you? And you're like me, you just want to slam it on them as hard as you can because they offended you by not thanking you. I mean, we live in the most easily offended culture in the history of the world. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times when I have watched somebody accidentally merge without knowing someone was there and watch road rage develop down the road or how many times people have waved at me with their middle fingers because of a mistake that I have made driving down the road. And, and it's, I mean, are people really that sensitive? Do you, do you think I really intended to run you off the road just because I don't care about you? Perhaps it was a mistake. We live in a world that's so thin-skinned that, man, we get offended at the slightest thing. If you don't text back fast enough, if you don't put a smiley face on the end of your text message, if your email isn't nice enough or isn't long enough or doesn't come fast enough, if you didn't smile at me or say hi to me when we passed in the hallway, I mean, we build this offense into ourselves because we live in, we live in a culture that, that doesn't know how to get over things. And we're so easily offended. Abraham Lincoln said we should be too big to take offense and too noble to give it. That's a great quote from a great man. We should be too big to take offense at everything and too noble to give offense. 
Early in my ministry, I had the opportunity to have dinner with kind of a ministry hero of mine that had been in ministry for more than 50 years. And every time I, I have lunch, and this week I'll have lunch with some pastors that I respect greatly at a conference in Florida. Every time I have lunch with a pastor who's older than me, who's been in the ministry, I'll ask him the same question. I've been doing it for 15 years. What one piece of advice would you give me to help me long-term in the ministry? And I've had dozens of answers given to me to that question. What one piece of advice would you give me being my age, doing what I'm trying to do. But one of the best pieces of advice ever came to us, we're eating dinner. This old seasoned pastor had been in the ministry more than 50 years. I expected him to say something about loving my wife or loving Jesus or doing devotions or always preaching God's word. And he looked at me, he was eating steak and he looked, he took a bite of steak and he looked up at me. What's the greatest piece of advice? He looked at me and he said, you need to develop thick skin. It's the greatest piece of advice I could give you in ministry. Just develop thick skin because if you're offended easily, ministry is not for you. Develop thick skin. I think we need, live in a culture that needs to develop thick skin. So because of that, I've tried to research articles, read books on kind of how to develop an inner toughness that, that doesn't take offense at everything. And I, I ran across this list in an article one time that I want to share, you today, share with you today. I might be easily offended if. This was a list that I read in an article in a journal. I might be easily offended if. How do you know if your skin is a little too thin. If you explode in fits of rage over little things, maybe the problem is you, not somebody else. If other people say you make mountains out of molehills, maybe the problem is you and not somebody else. If you frequently take things the wrong way, if you always are taking things the wrong way, the problem might be you, not somebody else. If other people always feel like they have to walk on eggshells around you because they're always afraid they're gonna offend you, it might be you. If others consider you high-maintenance, and they're always having to do more for you because they know you're, you're going to be offended if they don't. It, it might be you. And here's the fact that I learned. Hypersensitivity is the enemy of relational peace. Like if you're hypersensitive about everyone in your life, from your spouse to your kids to your parents to the people you work with to your neighbors, if you're hypersensitive, you're never going to have relational peace. And I love what Solomon in Proverbs 19.11 says. And here's where we're getting to. You say, well, where does the Bible tell me to just learn to get over things. Right here, Proverbs 19, 11. A person's wisdom yields patience, and it's to one's glory to overlook an offense. Every now and then, somebody's going to do something that offends you, whether it's at a four-way stop, or whether it's at a Thanksgiving dinner, or whether it's talking out in the driveway, or whether it's somebody coaching your kid, or whether it's your boss having a bad day, or a coworker having a bad day, Every now and then, if not every day, somebody's going to do something to offend you a little bit. And Solomon says probably the best thing you can do most of the time is just get over it. But he says something interesting. He said it, it's actually to your glory to overlook an offense. The word glory in this context is basically it's like shining a spotlight on your life to highlight something great that's been done. Basically, overlooking something that could cause relational conflict actually makes you look good. That's what Solomon is saying. Overlooking something that would so easily cause relational conflict in somebody who's hypersensitive is actually going to make you look good, and it's going to draw people towards you because they know they can trust you not to take offense at the smallest things that imperfect people often do in imperfect situations. However, however, if your heart doesn't have peace with being able to get over it, then you're going to have to go to the next level because this is only going to work if you can move forward with peace in your heart. Remember, the goal of Christian relationships is not to get over it. The goal of Christian relationships is to live with peace. So if you can process some offense for an hour or two, 
You know, we used to have the 10-second rule. You know, if somebody makes you angry, count to 10 before you say something. Usually within 10 seconds, the offense has subsided. What if you gave it a day or a week? If after a week you can sleep and you're not thinking of it when you go to bed, you're not thinking of it when you wake up, and you're able to kind of move on in peace, just let it go. But if that doesn't happen, the goal of Christian relationships is not to, to overlook things. The goal of Christian relationships is to live at peace. So if after a week this is still kind of eating at you, and, and it's in your heart, and you're thinking about it all the time, then you've got to go to step number two biblically. You've got to learn to get along. So if you can't learn to get over it and walk away, which I believe is great biblical advice, then you have to do the next biblical thing. You have to learn to get along. And this is where practical Jesus really steps in, and it's why I've put this entire text of Matthew 18 on your sermon notes so that you can actually have it in your hands and read it. I didn't just want to put it on the screen. I didn't just want to read it. I want you to have this in your hands because I believe the next time you're fighting with your spouse, if you were to call Jesus and say, Jesus, what am I supposed to do? Jesus would read verbatim Matthew 18. And the next time you have conflict at your job, if you were to call Jesus and say, Jesus, what do I do? Jesus is going to read you Matthew chapter 18. And the next time you have relational conflict with a sibling or with a family member or a neighbor and you say, Jesus, what do I do? I believe Jesus very practically every time is going to give you Matthew chapter 18. Here's how you get along with people who have hurt you. By the way, Matthew 18 is not for someone who has offended you. It's for the person who's been offended. So if you take Matthew 18 and give it to someone who's offended you, it's not going to work. It's not for them. It's for you. And if you will do what Matthew 18 says, you're going to bring maybe not relational restoration every time, but you'll bring relational peace. And that is the goal of Christian relationships. Here's what Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says in the New Living Translation. If If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, You've won that person back. But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say might be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or as a corrupt tax collector. Listen, this text in Matthew 18 speaks specifically for how to handle conflict when somebody has offended you or when someone has hurt you. And most of you can probably see their face in your head. You could write their name on your sermon notes. Don't do it. Someone else will look. We're nosy, right? We're we're all going to see if you write someone's name down. But if somebody has offended you, if someone who has, has hurt you, here's how the Bible says you work towards peace in that situation. Step number one, Jesus says you have to go directly to the person who hurt you and privately explain how they hurt you. Now, we know in Philippians 4 that the Apostle Paul says, let your gentleness be known to all. So you might write on your sermon notes, you need to do this gently. You need to do this humbly. Humbly means you think of others before yourself. But if someone has offended you, if someone has hurt you, the first thing you're supposed to do, according to Scripture, is go directly to them and privately explain to them what they did to hurt you. Do it respectfully. Do it gently. Do it humbly. But you have to go and tell people because here's the crazy thing about people who have offended others. Jesus said you need to go and point out. That phrase in the Greek language means bring to light something that's hidden. Jesus is basically saying this. The majority of the time someone has offended you, they don't even realize it. And you waste all your time being angry, being bitter, being hurt, being confused. They literally are not even thinking about you. They don't... They don't even know it happened. They've not thought about it one time. So you have to bring to light something that is hidden. 
usually the first step is to say, hey, you, you may not be aware of this, but when you did this, here's, here's how I felt. And the vast majority of the time when you're dealing with good Christian people, they're going to say, man, I, didn't even know, I wasn't even aware of that. And the Bible says if you point it out and you help them understand what they've done and if they confess that they get it, confession basically it's a clear statement that the other person understands what they've done, Jesus says you're done. Literally, you're done. This message could be two points. If someone offends you, try to ignore it. See if you can develop some thick skin. If you can't ignore it, go talk to them. Help them understand what they've done. And if they understand it and apologize, it's done. You're over. This entire message is done with this point if this is the way it works. Unfortunately, we don't live in a perfect world. And unfortunately, most people aren't done right here. They don't end here because they don't start here. And here's what you need to understand about Matthew chapter 18. When you, as the person who has been offended, breaks the rules of Matthew chapter 18, when you violate step one, how do you violate step one? You do anything other than going directly to the person and privately tell them what's going on. When you call your mom or dad first, when you call your friends first, when you call your small group first, when you tell your kids first, when you tell your your sisters first, when you talk to anyone first about what has happened instead of that person You have violated step one of relational restoration, and guess what? Now you become the offender, and you've really jeopardized relational restoration in in this matter because you've taken a private matter, and instead of you being offended and you being able to work out, you've, you've allowed everyone else to become offended, and usually when you finally get to the point where you go and talk to someone, all those people you've also told are not in the room. They don't get to see how sincerely sorry that person is. And after you're done being angry, everyone else hates the person who's offended you. This is usually why there's so much turmoil and conflict in families because my spouse offends me. I go tell my parents, my spouse apologizes, but I don't tell my parents that. Or when I tell them, they think, yeah, sure, but, you know, it couldn't have been as sincere as I thought it might be. And we just create all this tension. Dr. John MacArthur, who's a New Testament scholar, says about this text, the more a person's sin is known and discussed by others, no matter how well-meaning they may be, the easier it is for him to become resentful and the harder it may be for repentance and restoration. When they're corrected in private, in a spirit of humility and love, their change of heart is much more likely. And if they do repent, a unique and marvelous bond of intimacy is established between two believers, indicated by the phrase, you've won that person back. So conflict's gonna come. But Jesus says, if you handle conflict this way, you're going to take a relationship that was here, you're going to move it to here. If you take conflict and you deal with it in an unbiblical manner, you're going to take a relationship that's here and you're going to kill all the trust and you're going to start over at ground level. So let's learn how to do things the correct way. Now, the best way to do this would be for every Christian who's listening to my voice today to refuse to be drawn into unbiblical conversation and confrontation. As I have begun to understand this the last two or three years, I actually refuse, even as a pastor, to talk to someone about another person without bringing that person in. I have people call me all the time. They say, man, I just need to, can I share with you something that somebody else, this, can I share with you something that happened between me and somebody else? You know what my answer always is? No. Well, why not? Well, have you shared it with them yet? Well, no, but I need to share it with someone. Well, the Bible says you share it with them. So I'm not going to do something unbiblical for you by allowing you to share it with me before you've shared it with them. I have people all the time say, Christian, I just need to, t- I need to tell you something, but I need to tell you confidentially. I don't want you to do anything about it. Will you, can, will you do that? And I say, no, 
Now, pastoral counseling has confidentiality, but if you tell me a situation of conflict between you and another person, I will not keep that confidential. Scripture says I have to go tell that person and sit you down together. And I've had people say, listen, I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to listen. And I say to them, that's unbiblical. Like, it's unbiblical for you to talk about a situation without desiring to fix it. It's unbiblical for me to talk to you about person X without talking to person X. That's not confidentiality. That's sin, according to Matthew chapter 18. So, no, I'm not going to talk to you about them. If I do talk to you about them, we're either going to get them on a conference call, or as soon as you hang up, I'm going to call them and say, hey, person X called me about you. We need to sit down and talk about this. Can you imagine if every Christian would do that? The, the, the lack of drama that would exist in all of our lives. I've actually asked some of my friends that I'm close to who people will go to my friends about me, like your friends go to other people about you, and, and they'll have ongoing things. This is, I, I ask, I've asked my friends, don't ever listen to anything anyone says about me if they've not first come to me. Anytime someone says to you, man, can I share something with you about Christian? You can say, yes, but I need you to know I'm going to go and tell him so that he can fix this. Every time. So please don't ever listen to anyone say anything about me without bringing them to me so we can do the biblical thing. And what happens is we exist in a world where we talk around issues but never directly to issues. And we live in a world that's just broken, shattered relationally because no one will do what Jesus said to do. It's pretty simple. Somebody offends you, go talk to them. First step, go talk, go talk to them privately. Help them understand what's been done and see what happens from there. Now, you say, well, what if that doesn't work out? Well, step two, Jesus gives us the answer to that. If that doesn't work out, you need to then ask if you can bring a third party into the unresolved conflict that remains. And this needs to be done at the initial meeting. You need to sit down with a person. You need to say, hey, you may not realize you've done this, but this is something that's happened, and here's how I feel. And if they don't say, man, I recognize that, I'm sorry. If they say, well, I just disagree, and you just need to get over it, at that point, you say, man, because I, because I want this sorted out in my life and because I want to live at peace with you, would it be okay if we brought someone in to, to just listen to what happens and talk about this? I, I told someone in our church a few weeks ago, I said, there's three sides to every story, their side, your side, and the truth. And somewhere usually in the middle of how two people perceive things is what really happened. And sometimes you have to say, listen, can I, can I go talk to this? Can I bring someone in to just listen to what I'm feeling and what you're feeling, because maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe you really didn't do anything wrong, and this is all I'm making. Can I bring someone in? And if they say yes, step three, you need to sit down with that trusted third party and try to resolve the conflict. You have to. It's why my wife, Danielle, and I go to a counselor, and we've not only been to a counselor together and apart, we've brought other people into counseling with us. We've had some issues we can't resolve on our own. We just need a trusted third party to sit and listen and help us make sense of the truth. You say, well, Christian, what, what if that doesn't help? Then, step four, you turn to the church for help. You talk to your small group leader. You talk to your ministry leader. You talk to a pastor you know and say, hey, from a biblical perspective, can you step in and help me make sense of this? Unfortunately, we usually start with the church. And I think if more pastors would be willing to say after the first phone call, because all of our phones now can sync other people in, when someone calls and says, man, I need to talk to you about John, we need to say, stop, say, have you talked to John yet? No. All right, let me get him on the phone, and then you can, and then you can go. Most people at that point say, no, 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 no. I don't need to talk to you about John anymore. Did I say John? I didn't mean John. I just, man, aren't the royals doing great? You know what I mean? It's crazy how people run from confrontation. When Jesus says you need to run towards confrontation, 
if you're ever going to work through it. Now, every Christian I've ever walked through this step, they are so nervous to make that phone call. They're so nervous to have that meeting. And then you know what they say? Almost every time, man, I'm so glad I did that. I wish I'd have done it sooner. Like, I wish I would have just called them up the, the day they hurt me and told them because they weren't even aware of it. Because every time it seems to work out and you end up with closer friendships. Now, most times when people call me and say, Christian, here's what's going on, my first counsel is always, just just try to ignore that. I always ask people, do you know this person? Do you trust this person's heart? Okay, will you allow them to be human and make mistakes? And if the answer to those three things is yes, then just move on. Like if you trust them and and you know them and you're close to them, then just ignore, don't don't make a mountain out of a molehill. But if you can't do that, you got to call them. And if you won't call them, I'm going to call them. But within 24 hours, one of us is going to talk to them or else we've done exactly the opposite of what Jesus has told us to do. And it almost always works out when you do the right thing. And when it doesn't, so we try to learn to get over it. If that doesn't work, we try to learn to approach it. If that doesn't work, Scripture says then you need to learn to get away. You need to learn that it's okay to step out of a relationship that's grown toxic that just doesn't work anymore. Jesus said in Matthew 18, you treat him like a pagan or a tax lawyer. He basically said you need to break life fellowship with him. You don't need to continue doing life with someone who brings inner turmoil every time that they're around you. Sometimes, unfortunately, the only way to peace in a relationship is to remove yourself from a relationship for a time or maybe for good. Solomon spoke to this in Proverbs chapter 6.27 when he said, can a man scoop flame into his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire. Basically, Solomon's saying, there's some people in your life, when you're around them, your life goes in this direction. If you've just become a Christian and you're trying to break this addiction, and every time you're around these people, you end up back in this addiction, you just can't be around those people for a time, maybe forever. You know, if you're in this situation and your marriage is falling apart because this third party is throwing an awkward deal in there, but you work with them every day, you might need to quit your job to save your marriage. You might just need, you, you might need, you've done all this other stuff and you just can't get over the bad relationship, you walk away. If you've got someone abusive in your life and every time you're around them, there's mental abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, you're not counseling through that, you're getting the heck away. You're walking away from relationships that steal peace continually and once you've done all these other steps, it just, it can't be fixed. You have to realize you can walk away. The reality is that when a relationship is cancerous, it has to be cut out. Several friends who have had cancer, several family members who have had cancer, and they usually try to cut it out first and foremost and then treat it secondly. We try to treat toxicity in relationships so long that it ruins our our entire life and being. There are some of you who, because you have not been willing to walk away from a relationship, the week before you're engaged with this person, the month after you you're not as good a spouse as you need to be. You're not as good a parent as you need to be. Your work, at, your work performance at your job suffers. Your physical health declines. Your mental health declines. It's a relationship that's just no good for you. And you have to realize if, if you've tried to ignore it and you can't, and you've tried to approach it and that hasn't worked, you need to realize you have permission to walk away. In 2 Timothy two sixteen through 18, Paul, counseling this young Timothy, this young pastor he's mentoring, said, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, 
who have departed from the truth. So the Apostle Paul in these two verses says you need to avoid this thing. And Timothy, people who consistently do this thing, you need to avoid them too. You can avoid people. You hate to say sometimes you have to cut people off, but this is the thought of, of, of this relationship, that this relationship continually steals peace, robs peace, is toxic for your life, and you need to step away. Now, this step should only be considered after all the previous steps have been tried repeatedly, but when you realize it's not getting better, sometimes you realize that you just have to get away. I'll never forget sitting down with a counselor friend of mine and describing to him a relationship that had grown so toxic that any time I relationally was even around this circle, like I'd have so much stress and grind my teeth so bad when I was sleeping, I had to go get a professional mouth guard because literally my jaws would lock up just from the anxiety of knowing a meeting was coming. And I'll never forget him saying to me, Christian, you don't have to be in this relationship. Like, you don't have to answer the phone calls. You don't have to return the emails. You don't have to go to coffee. You don't have to do this. Like, you can be done with this. You don't have to do this anymore. I'll never forget another counselor sitting at an olive garden in Lynchburg, Virginia, talking to him about a toxic relationship. And he said, Christian, there are some relationships that are like swimming pools. And you're always kind of cautious. Well, you, know, you never know what's going to happen when you walk in and you're cautious. And he said, just like you dip your toe in the, in the edge of a swimming pool to see whether the water's hot and cold, you have some relationships that just have a little conflict in them. And he said, every time you, you're on the phone or you see him coming, you're kind of testing the water to make sure it's okay, to make sure that person's having a good day before you engage. And he said, you have a lot of relationships like that and they're fine. But he said, you have some relationships that are like tornadoes. And he said, there's not a human being alive that tries to test the wind speed of a tornado by sticking their hand in and seeing how it is because if you get close to it, you get sucked up in it. And he said, you have a relationship. If you don't back way away from it, every time you're near it, you're gonna get sucked into the turmoil that is this relationship you gotta walk away. And he pointed me to the, to the life and the story of David and Saul, David who killed Goliath and who became Israel's great king. He, he worked for a man named Saul who was the king of Israel, and he was kind of his top general going and fighting battles. And their relationship became so contentious that literally Saul hated him half the time and wanted to kill him half the time. But then he would come to his senses and say, oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have done that. And like David would be playing his heart for Saul, and Saul would kind of try to kill him, and David would remove himself from the relationship, and Saul would say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that again. So David would re-engage in the relationship. And a few days, a few weeks later, Saul would try to kill him again, so David would remove himself from the relationship, and then he would apologize, and David would go back into the relationship. And one day it clicked in David's mind, this isn't changing. He's not changing. This is not going to work. And they had a conflict where David had the opportunity to take Saul out. And he said, you know, I don't want to kill this guy. I just I don't want to be around him anymore. So he snuck into his camp to prove to him he wasn't his enemy. And Saul woke up, and for the last time, Saul said, man, I'm sorry, I apologize, come back, I won't do it anymore. But David said, I accept your apology, and I love you, but we will never be engaged in a relationship again. We find that text in 1 Samuel 26, 21 through 25. Saul, who was the king, woke up and said, I've sinned, come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I'm not gonna try to harm you again. Surely I've acted like a fool and I've been terribly wrong. Here's the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your guys come and get it. So he said, come back. David said, I'm not even gonna come give you your spear back. I'm done with you. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands, but I wouldn't lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, may you be blessed, David, my son. You're gonna do great things and you're surely gonna triumph. 
So David went on his way, and Saul returned home. You see this conflicting, contentious relationship where this troubled part of the relationship kept saying, I'm sorry, but nothing changed. And David finally said, I accept your apology, but I'm walking away. I just can't, I just can't live in this anymore because I have no relational, at his point, physical peace in my life with you there. And the reality is when I asked my counselor, I said, well, you know, how does this work? How do you walk away from someone who's a Christian? And, you know, I fast forwarded him. I said, what, so what do you do in heaven one day? When like you're walking down the road and you know this person's a Christian, you're a Christian, but like you don't speak to him, like what are you going to do in heaven one day? Are you, you going to like walk on d- d- separate sides of the streets of gold? Like and make sure, what are you going to do? And he said, Christian, let heaven worry. But in heaven, everything, God, God will figure all that out. You just have to do right now what's going to protect you, your relational peace, your role as a Christian, your role as a husband, your role as a father. Let God worry about eternity. And the reality is sometimes we won't have relational restoration on this side of eternity. And we just have to trust God for relational capacity beyond that. It just is the reality of what it is. You and an ex-spouse, sometimes in this lifetime, it's not going to come back together. You and your prodigal kids, like the prodigal dad, did he just let him go and just say, God, help me. You and the, the person that you've had a, a split with, you and an abusive person in your life, sometimes you just need to walk away and just trust God to take care of that. But you go on in your own life and live within relational peace because the goal of Christian relationships, according to Romans twelve eighteen, is to live with some peace in your life, not live in conflict. Now, there's a postscript to this message, which means this. I've been talking to offended people, but some of us are, are both, on one hand, offended, and on the other hand, we are the offender. We've done something wrong. So you say, well, Christian, what do, what, you know, what do I do if somebody approaches me and says, hey, you've done this to me? Listen, here's the postscript. Here's the PS. If you're the offender and not the offended, you just have to listen with a soft heart when people confront you, and you have to have a quick apology to somebody trying to reconcile a relationship with you. If you will start with those two things, if you will start with a soft heart, if you will start with a quick apology, I'm sorry, I certainly didn't want it to get here, then you can kind of regroup. You say, well, what do we do when I regroup? You figure out, one, if you can ignore it. If you can't ignore it, you figure out if you can approach it, and you approach it, you go back to them and talk to them. If that doesn't work, you take somebody with you. See how this just plays out very practically in your life? It's an easy step-by-step guide to relational peace because Jesus wants us to live with relational peace. Now, here's my question for you this morning as we close. Who do you have conflict with? What do you have conflict over that this week you need to address? Maybe it's an email. Maybe it's a handwritten letter for those of you who still do that. Maybe it's a text message. Maybe it's a private Facebook message. Maybe it's a cup of coffee. But who do you this week need to go to and say, I just need you to know this. And some of you need to apologize first. And I hope you'll forgive me, but I've already told 20 people what you've done to me. So sorry, I just learned that I wasn't supposed to do that. <laughs> Actually had somebody come up to me after the first service said, I owe you an apology. Big spirited person. I owe you an apology. For five years, I've been talking bad about you for this thing and I didn't know how to deal with it, and now I realize I need to come to you. They told me the thing that I had done that offended them, which I couldn't even remember. They were right. I was wrong, and I said, I'm so sorry, and of course I forgive you. And they said, you know, for years people ask me, tell me about Pastor Christian. I say, he's a good pastor, but he's not a, he's not a good person um, because of a, a relationship hiccup that we had several years ago. And I thought, man, thanks for coming to me. 
Now, my prayer is that I've not so deeply offended everyone in here that I have a line of people after church saying, man, now I need to, like, I need to talk to you about something. Like, I know the Lord humbles me by reminding me I can be a jerk every now and then, but I hope it's not. I'm going to stand in the rain just in case. Maybe you can call me. Um, but some of you need to go to someone. Some of you are going to have some people come to you. And you know what you need to do? You need to listen because probably these people might be right. And you need to say, man, you're, you're, I am, I'm really sorry. I didn't realize that it was like that, and you're right, and I was wrong. And how can, how can I fix it? Um, and I've got to do that between services, so maybe you'll get to do that today. But the goal, of relational, um, the goal of relationships is relational peace. And if we can grasp that and remember this, I believe we can live different, better lives for Jesus. Let's pray today.